I'm Carl Jacob. I'm Aaron Brown. And this is Power in the Wilderness. Hey, Carl, you know what? You know what Victor Power was known for? Drinking a lot? No, not that. Being real smooth with the ladies? No, not that. Uh, political controversy? No, no, not that either. No, Victor Power was known for building. And you know who builds things in Hibbing, Minnesota nowadays? Hanks Woodworks, that's who. Hanks Woodworks is a family-owned, locally-owned business building things in the heart of Minnesota's Iron Range. And thank you to Hanks Woodworks for supporting this episode of Power in the Wilderness. In episode one, we introduced you Victor Power and started peeling back the layers of his complicated and fascinating story. From starting as a blacksmith in the mines of northern Minnesota and rising to power as one of the most unstoppable lawyers at the turn of the last century. After he took the case of Sam Kasich, a man defending himself against killing another man in a duel. That can all be heard in episode one, which we encourage you to listen to before listening to this episode, because this is a serialized podcast. Podcast, and you might get lost if you don't listen to all of the episodes in order. You can also listen to episode one at our website, powerinthewilderness.com. Now we have some fun things in store for you in episode two, including explosions, men getting attacked by animals, and Victor Power taking on the first of one of his major cases against U.S. Steel, the largest corporation in the world at the turn of the last century. By the time this episode is over, Vic will have transitioned from powerful lawyer to powerful leader. There were a couple of unanswered questions from some of the things we covered in episode one, and we promise we will get to the answers. But first, Mexico. Vic, what the hell did you get yourself into now? It was a setup. It was Casey. He set me up with this gal, and you were just a pawn in his game. Come here. We got to get out of here right now. I'm sorry, Walt. I'm I can't sorry, send Walt. you to do anything, can I? Well, no, it was going to be fine. It's the last time I'm bailing you out of a jail cell. Hope it was worth it. We got to get back to the hotel. Hop in this car. Get us out of here, CB. They're coming on horse. They're coming on horse. Oh, they followed us. Come on. How many horsepower does this thing have? <laughs> Damn it. Faster. Cochise? <laughs> what did you say? Cochise, that's the name of the town where they're going. You mean like, <laughs> like confirming details that you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I don't, I don't, like what's Vic, what's Vic doing in that moment? He's probably dumbfounded because here's the thing. Walter was seen in an alley, kind of ducking in an alley, watching the building where they had been or, and the hotel where all of the Casey's guys were. And they're watching and looking for any kind of uh, hazards, people coming, things that would be harmful to them. According to the newspaper article. According to the newspaper article, which was... A propaganda piece. Which was a propaganda piece put out by Casey. So who the f*** knows what really happened? That one I... Uh, Wait, can you say f- on the radio? Or am I going to get beeped out every time I say the word That's a beeper, yeah. So what what we were trying to do there is reenact a car chase. <laughs> <laughs> To the best of our abilities. Yes, Carl, you're saddled with a bad actor here. Sorry about that. I'm not sure my performance was uh, one to write home about either. So there's this car chase, and it all started because a deal that was tenuous at best got out of control, and people wanted heads to roll for it. There were a bunch of different stories flying around, and no one knew who to trust. Before you know it, Walter and Victor Power are in a car, apparently outrunning a sheriff and his posse on horseback. 
to get away from being served papers that would have required them to stay in the border town of Bisbee, Arizona, to face the law. Or maybe even face something worse than the law, because part of the story involves a young woman who was the daughter of a prominent county official and young Victor, and that there may have been some personal vendetta tied in with the chase. And they may have been running from different versions of authority and potentially running for their lives. And all of this happened in May of 1909, which is about a year before the events in the final chapter of our first episode. Now, we didn't think we were going to find ourselves going to Mexico. No, we didn't. But something happened when we were going down the trail of one of Vic's friends and confidants, someone who is a really interesting character. And all we really need to know is that his name is Carl, just like me. His last name is Teal. And he was a photographer, the first photographer that we have any record of in Hibbing, Minnesota. And he and Vic had a very close relationship. Like we do with a lot of the characters in the story, we try to find if they have any living relatives. And Carl Teal is one of the very few people who we found not only a living relative, but a living relative who had some semblance of history about his great-grandfather, right? Great-grandfather. His, his great-grandfather. Yeah. The existence of Carl and his friendship with the Power Brothers brought us to R.J. Thiel. And Aaron was talking to him a while back, and this story came out. My grandfather died when I was a little bit older, but the first time I heard the story that I remember was in high school. This is R.J. From what I can remember, they went through the incorporation and they started selling shares of stock and they did this, that, and the other thing, and they didn't even have a mine yet. There's an old saying in Western mining that a mine is nothing more than a hole in the ground with a liar at the top. And this is a story <laughs> about mining speculation. That's what Walter and Vic and their friends are. They're speculators. And this is all in Bisbee, Arizona. Bisbee is to Arizona what Hibbing is to Minnesota at this time, except that the thing that they're mining in Bisbee is copper. They think they can get at some ore and get people to dig it up and sell it and make some money. But they haven't actually done any of that yet. They just had the promise of surveys and what things were going to be once they started digging. Well, at some point, somebody, after Walter had gone back to Minnesota and Mr. Casey is running the show down in Arizona, somebody called them on it and claimed that there was a, uh, a whole defrauding thing because the mine was never going to take off and not going to do anything. And what Granddad said is they intended to make everything go, but there was a lot of speculating going on at that time in our century. I think it'll be good to clarify two things here. Bisbee, Arizona is the hub of where all the mining operations are taking place for all of these speculators who are coming down here. It was a lot like Hibbing in that there was a lot more bars than there were churches, and there was transients coming through all the time, some legitimate, some illegitimate. It was a wild western town, maybe even more so than Hibbing because it was warm all year and so people could stay the proximity to Mexico made it also, there's just an element of lawlessness because there was no border that we would now know of. People walked, simply just walked through the desert and would, with their compass, realize they were in another country. But a lot of the actual mining is going on just over the border in Mexico in a place called Cananea. The other thing you're probably wondering is who is this Casey that we keep talking about? Well, Casey was... <laughs> 
the local business partner of Walter and Vicks, the guy left behind in Bisbee to run the show. And we're not really sure how they met, but based on the single photograph that we've seen of him, you can tell from a mile away that this guy is shady. He is. He's got this classic train robber look with the beady little eyes and this long stringy mustache. You couldn't draw a caricature of this guy because you would just be drawing his actual face. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and he's one of those guys like he's not that big. He's kind of thin featured, but you just know that he could probably crush your hand if you shook it. And he's definitely right out of casting for a Western of the baddie. And he, he just has this piercing gaze, like even through the old grainy photograph we have of him, where all of the other subjects look like balls of dough. Yeah, it's an over a hundred year old photo that still makes you uncomfortable, even though no other eyes can be really made out <laughs> in the photograph. His are <laughs> piercing you yeah so now the big kerfuffle happens in arizona this is rj again getting back to the family story the people are after uh mr casey and the uh people that were angry about buying shares in this corporation that didn't really have a mine the local board of directors of the mine voted out mr casey and hired some guy his name is c b bell bell comes in to take over well, at that point, Mr. Casey summons Walter to come down. He's got to help smooth this out and do whatever. Well, Walter, whatever it was, granddad said he was busy, he couldn't come, something was going on. Here goes Victor. Victor's an attorney. Down he goes to Arizona to help deal with this. Picture a cherubic young man in his mid to late 20s, draped in a suit that didn't fit him quite well. He's a young man, not yet as confident and strong as he would become, but he likes to drink. And he steps off the train. He really likes to drink. Yeah, there's a lot of stories. <laughs> but he steps off the train, and the guy he's intending to investigate, maybe even throw out of the company, meets him there like a buddy and says, hey, let's go have a drink and talk about all this. And that sounds pretty good to Vic, who had just endured a cross-country train ride. And they go to one of the prospector bars, and they have a night of drinking, gambling, and Victor becomes enamored with and somehow entangled with a young woman. Victor gets there, he's in town, and apparently Victor had a reputation for you know, goofing around with ladies and women and this, that, and the other thing. Well, apparently he was set up by Mr. Casey with a local young lady. This is, it turns out, the daughter of a Cochise County commissioner, one who is close to John Casey, the man that Victor's there to investigate, and who doesn't like how it turns out. They arrange to have a father make a complaint, and Victor winds up in jail. So now... Walter has to come down to rescue everybody. Walter hadn't gone on the trip because he was busy. Well, this is a new priority. His brother and the attorney for the mining company is in jail. And now Walter has to come. It takes, of course, a few days to get there. Apparently, Mr. Bell realizes that Walter is on the up and up up in Hibbing, and so is Victor, and it's Casey that is trying to embezzle all this money. So Mr. Bell, now doing a complete 180, is on the side of Victor. They bail him out, 
just in time for Walter to get into town. Walter gets into town and convinces Mr. Bell, who has an automobile, that they need to get out of town because he went to file writ or some release form in the county courthouse and they pretty much chased him out of there. The sheriff wasn't there. Walter goes and gets Mr. Bell and Victor and they get in his car and take off out of Arizona. word that Vic's getting out of jail and headed back for Minnesota gets out, a posse is formed. The commissioner, his allies, his buddies, perhaps some of the people aligned with Casey are now forming up and they're going to try to get Vic and Walter, two guys that they don't want anything to do with anymore, and who knows what might happen to them. So to sum it all up, we've got this guy Casey, who has been clearly screwing all these people over and manipulating people and did such a good job at it that he's got the president of the mining company, Walter, and the acting attorney for the mining company, Victor, running from a sheriff and his posse of local influential people who are literally, probably, trying to kill them. (laughs) They're on horses, as the story goes, and Vic and Walter and C.B. Bell are in the car just barely outrunning this group of people on horseback. I can only imagine yelling profanities and shooting their guns in the air, or maybe not. Maybe it was more cordial than that, but I doubt it because as we know, Aaron, Casey, we have evidence. Yeah. That Casey kills people. Casey kills a guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's a murderer. He's a murderer and a con man. And this all comes out later, many years after this incident, because there are uh, stories in public papers and other places where he lived. And he fakes Uh, his own death and goes on the lamb too. That's the kind of cat he is. Yeah. Fascinating character, different podcast. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But why is all of this important? It's important for a couple reasons. I think the first reason is that it indicates ambition of the Power Boys and the lengths that they're willing to go to to try to take risks to make even more money. I mean, they were already pretty successful in Hibbing, but they are willing to take these risks. Walter Power came to northern Minnesota to Hibbing, and he had the ambition to become a titan of industry. And he found that he was stymied by the Oliver Mining Company. And he gets a whiff of a copper range over the border in Mexico that is promising all the same glories that the Mesabi Iron Range was promising at the time as well. Only there was a chance for him to get in on it, or so he thought. And Walter had pretty much done everything he could as a businessman in Hibbing at this time. I mean, he and his wife Dottie kind of had the whole business scene cornered. There wasn't much more room for expansion. They were feeling like they had kind of hit the ceiling there. And he thought that he could remake himself, take a bold leap down to the desert, and become the equivalent of the men who were giving him fits back in Hibbing. Vic, he didn't want to be a lawyer at first. But he became one because he saw the value of the law in changing things. But he never gave up the family ambition, and he supported his brother. He worked with his brother and saw that it would be beneficial for him if he did so. Plus, if Walter and Dottie moved to Mexico, Vic might get Hibbing all to himself, and he might be called upon to lead Walter and Dottie's assets in Hibbing. So there was some ambition there for family expansion, I think. And, and Vic was, I think, more of a side player in the Mexico story, but he was involved and I think he wanted to impress his brother. He wanted to become someone his brother was proud of. The other thing that we're learning from this experience is that even when Walter goes down to Mexico, 
to try to start a mining company far from U.S. Steel, U.S. Steel follows him. Because Walter's trying to start mines in northern Minnesota, too. The problem he's got is that U.S. Steel runs everything. And he's finding the dregs. He's finding second-class properties and trying to develop them. But he thinks he's got a lead in Arizona. He's going to get ahead of them. But, in fact, he runs right into them when he gets down there. So we don't really need to get too far into the details of the two different mining companies that Walter had in Cananea in Mexico. But the takeaway is that one of the mining companies got into a situation that likely was, if not orchestrated by, manipulated by an officer of the Oliver Mining Company in northern Minnesota to the point where Walter had to sell the mine to them. So in the same way that they have in the past used the strong arm techniques to basically steal land from people. They used the same techniques against Walter on the other side of the country when he was trying to escape them. He only knew about it because Walter at one point tried to raise money by bringing him in as an investor and he said no, but then he waited a little while and then ate Walter's lunch. It shows the nature of U.S. Steel. It's not all run out of the corporate office in New York. There are tendrils that reach out from U.S. Steel in the form of its allies and its supporters. In this case, Thomas Cole acting on his own, supposedly, but very much with the blessing of his employer, the Oliver Iron Mining Company. Thomas Cole in Duluth reaches down, capitalizes on a situation in Arizona and Mexico, and ends up as the dominant player in northern Mexican copper mining. So there's a lot of incentive for this tendril to go down there and wreak havoc. They let the small players like Walter Power and Victor Power and people like them take all the early risks and sort things out and squabble and fight with each other, chase each other across the desert. But when it's all done, the profits go to the big boys, U.S. Steel and their officers. Now, an interesting aside to this is that the mining company that U.S. Steel purchased through Walter Power was the gateway to U.S. Steel essentially taking over all of the copper mining interests in Cananea during a time of a labor uprising that led to the Mexican Revolution. There's literally a song about it. In keeping with our tradition of older folks playing music on plinky instruments, I thought this version of the Carcel of Cananea was the best. The Cananea Jail is the name of the song. This song had such an impact on Mexican and Mexo-American culture that 83 years later, Linda Ronstad covered the song in 1987. It was a very important song in remembering the Mexican Revolution. can actually say that the labor uprising in Mexico is followed by a small labor uprising in northern Minnesota, even before Vic is mayor. And there are direct parallels. In fact, the Mexican workers who struck were getting paid the same as the immigrant workers in Hibbing were getting paid at the time. So th there is an international labor 
situation that U.S. Steel is attempting to manipulate and control. And Victor, because he and his brother were going between Hibbing and Arizona, of all places, in Mexico, they were seeing that, hey, you know, the wages they're paying down here, the wages they're paying back in Hibbing, they're almost the same. They're using the same tactics. They're using the same systems of uh, how to finance their mines, how to beat uh, other prospectors to the good properties, how to buy people out, intimidate people. They're doing it all over the world. And because they are mobile between these two places, they get to see it in a way that other people from Hibbing wouldn't have seen. This is why we call U.S. Steel the octopus. Wasn't there someone, a publication that wrote about U.S. Steel being an octopus? It was a common cartoon image of corporations at the time. The first one was Standard Oil, but U.S. Steel was many times larger than Standard Oil. And so the octopus took on new meaning when they started drawing those cartoons about U.S. Steel. And it's the idea that you can fight one of the tentacles of an octopus. And even if you successfully escape or defeat that tentacle, here comes another one. And that's what happened to Walter in this situation. El pulpo pen That means asshole octopus in Spanish. I've never, I've never needed that phrase, but now I do. El pulpo pendejo. I'm Carl Jacob. I'm Aaron Brown. And you're listening to Power in the Wilderness. For more information about the show or to listen to past episodes, visit powerinthewilderness.com. Power in the Wilderness is made possible today by Hanks Woodworks, a family-owned, locally-owned business in the heart of Minnesota's Iron Range, building things in Hibbing, Minnesota, hometown of Victor Power and the events of Power in the Wilderness. Rest assured, I assume it was implied by our story, but Vic and Walter did get out safe and made it back to Hibbing in one piece. They did not get killed by the posse and the mob. Or we would not be telling this story. Right. It seems obvious, but I just want to make that very clear. (laughs) (laughs) I would like to give a little disclaimer about the middle section of our episode today, because... We're going to be throwing a lot of information at you, and it might seem slightly monotonous. We're going to try to make it as fun as possible. But trust us, we're going somewhere. Because in Act 3, there's going to be explosions. There's going to be animals attacking humans. And it's going to all be worth it. But you might need to just pay extra attention to a couple of the names right now as we go through some of this stuff. Meanwhile, back in Hibbing, another tentacle of the octopus is tightening its grip on the town. Walter and Vic have just gotten back to Hibbing, and they're witnessing what's going on. The octopus is learning from what happened in Mexico, and the notes from that lesson made it to Hibbing, Minnesota, through the mining company, and to Dr. Wyrick, who was acting in the mining's interests while sitting as mayor of Hibbing, Minnesota, in this time period. And now Wyrick is up for re-election. First elected in 1907, so he would be going into his third term as mayor of Hibbing, Minnesota. This election was presumed to be so uncontested that city officials decide to cancel the caucus for the elections. The city officials that were under the control of the current mayor, Dr. Wyrick. He led a single ticket to retake the seat as mayor. Townspeople in Hibbing called bull** on this. They get 
pissed. They decide to stage their own caucus and try to make an opposition ticket, but it's so disorganized and they do not unseat Wyrick. He gets his third term and they get so displeased with the government at this point and Wyrick's authoritarian behavior that something starts stirring in the general public in Hibbing that starts to invigorate a progressive movement. Now let's talk a little bit about Dr. Wyrick and how he became so powerful in such a short amount of time. I mean, he was he was brought to Hibbing by the mines in 1902, right, Aaron? That's right. Howard Rankin Wyrick. He's from Pennsylvania. He was raised on a farm. And he actually studied at what would become Columbia University in New York. So he was very well educated, really a leading young doctor of his time. And he comes to Hibbing as a recruit. So he's well paid, but he's also temperamentally suited for this cold, forbidding environment full of chaos because he believed himself to be a stability agent. He was a conservative Republican. He believed in law and order, and he believed in things being just so. Sounds a lot like some Someone who uh, is currently in power in our country. <laughs> yeah, well, you could say that, though. though Except for the well-educated part. Yeah, well, well-educated, very, uh, very articulate, and uh, a, a right proper gentleman, though a farm boy. So he a little rough and tumble. He had broad shoulders. He was tall. I think I even when I first texted you a picture of him, Carl, a young picture, I, I might have called him a dreamboat. You did call him a dreamboat. I did. He wasn't a dreamboat later in life. He became a very stern man. <laughs> but he was tall and imposing and well-spoken. And he ran the hospital for Dr. Rood, who was in kind of semi-retirement by that point. So Wyrick is a very well-known man. And so he's a perfect candidate to be a city leader. Dr. Wyrick is not co-opted by the Oliver Iron Mining Company. He is a true believer in U.S. Steel's philosophy about corporate power. Effectively an agent, but not one that's been indoctrinated. No, he's a true believer. He is an ally of the mines in a very profound sense. They trust him completely. And he not only trusts them, but he is on essentially on their payroll. Let me blow your mind for a short little segment here, Carl. Okay. Here's how healthcare in Hibbing worked at this time when Dr. Wyrick is running the hospital. The Oliver Iron Mining Company provides healthcare to its employees by by which they can pay a small fee. These are the miners and the various people who work for the company. And for paying this fee out of their paycheck, it's deducted from their paycheck, they can go to the doctor anytime they need to, but only the doctors that they allow, which is the Rood Hospital and Dr. Wyrick. And this practice is very lucrative for the Rood Hospital. It makes them very profitable and it allows them to live very good lives. And it's good for the miners too. They like having the ability to, to go to, they pay more if they want their families covered. This sounds a lot like a modern insurance setup that you would get from an employer. Is that unprecedented at the time? It was unprecedented. This is considered the first HMO in America, the first privately delivered corporate backed insurance scheme to provide health care to a workforce. Following through with the promises in episode one. Yes, <laughs> that's right. With indicators of how U.S. Steel laid the groundwork for future corporate America. I know we've mentioned a couple already in this episode, but I'm going to point this one out because this one seems pretty big. Yeah, this is... Is this, is this common knowledge? It's common knowledge in those who study the origins of the American healthcare system. And common knowledge among the doctors in Hibbing who sometimes lament that those doctors back in Wyrick's age really made a lot more 
more money per patient <laughs> than they do now. It was a very lucrative deal, and it seemed like a win for everyone at the time until healthcare gets more complex and people get older. But that's precisely where our modern healthcare system came from. And there are other big ones. Ford Motors very soon after had one of their own. It was very common. Wyrick was in charge of it. So he's a very smart man, and he believes he's doing the right thing for Hibbing. But he is very much a tool or an agent of the Oliver Iron Mining Company in his work by choice. So Walter and Vic come back to Hibbing to this moment in time when there's this invigorated progressive movement as a result of the abuses by Oliver and Dr. Wyrick basically having a governmental coup. I don't know if you'd call it a coup. I guess you could argue that they were the original government of the town to begin with. But let's just say that the people are starting to realize what's going on. And Vic is taking note of this. Not only is he taking note of this, he is making a name for himself. Now, in episode one, we talked about how he was doing all these speeches around town. And then he made a name for himself by defending the survivor of that pistol duel of the immigrant workers who were looking to escape their terrible lives. After that happened, there was a lot more outreach that he started doing. And he's really getting to know all of the different immigrants that are coming from all these different countries, most of whom don't speak English. And in a lot of cases, there's one person in that community who quickly rises to a position of leadership as a result of their ability to speak English. And those are the people that Vic starts making friends with. Vic doesn't speak any language other than English, but for every language spoken in the village of Hibbing, he has a very close friend who speaks that language. And what that means is that Vic now has a direct partner for each community, who he talks to on a regular basis, essentially forming a coalition. And that's really how he starts to operate. I'll give you a few examples. For instance, we got to meet a wonderful man, the son of Delmo Befra, who was a friend of Victor's, named Victor L. Befra. He was named for his father's very dear friend, Victor L. Power. And Delmo Befra is a larger-than-life Italian personality in the village of Hibbing. He is a very early adopter of automobiles. Remember, the powers like automobiles, too, as we've learned in this episode. But he's also the spokesperson for a large part of the Italian community because he speaks English. He had been something of a union organizer back in Europe before he came over. And so he had some ability to communicate in English. He would give the speeches. He would lead the plays and the dramatic presentations in the Italian language. And he was just this community figure who got things done for the new immigrants coming in. And that meant he also knew what was wrong in the community, and he knew what his people were telling him. And so when Victor Power becomes a friend to him, an equal, not an Englishman, but an Irishman who was kind of down in the lower rungs of society with him, an equal comes to him and says, I'm a lawyer, um, you know, my brother is a merchant, we're interested in making this town better, what are you hearing, Delmo? Delmo had someone he could tell, and some 
someone who could help him get things done. Victor took the cases of a lot of immigrants and did the small little legal tasks, the notary work, the little things that people needed done. They had a guy who was right there willing to help him. It was no trouble to him to help a poor immigrant with a small legal task. And this is something that other lawyers weren't doing, but Victor Power was. So in the Italian community, he had Delmo Befra. And in the Slavic community, he had a man a lot like Delmo, Paul Maris, who was a saloon keeper and a very powerful figure in his community. That's another huge part of the population that's being ignored and called names. Both Italians and Slavic peoples were called ethnic slurs quite regularly in the streets of Hibbing at this time. But Victor Power is reaching out to their communities, reaching out to their leaders, and just making friends. Now you could argue, we could argue and try to figure out, was Vic just laying down groundwork because he wanted to be a big political star? I don't think so, entirely. I think he really did like these folks and really did want the community to be better represented in its government. I don't think he was ignorant of the power he would eventually wield as a result of these relationships, though, either. No, no, no. Not that we need to get into debating it right after you said, let's not debate it. But I just want to point that out. I don't mind you saying that because it's true. Victor was a very savvy politician, and he knew that if he had friends that totaled 60% of the population of the village, and even though they might not be the well-connected people, the rich people, that meant he controlled elections and could win elections. Another great example during this time that I think just exemplifies what was different about Victor Power is the uh, Italian government opens a consulate in Hibbing. That's just how many Italians were moving into Hibbing at this time. Mm. It's serving the whole range community. So there's several towns on the Iron Range and mm. Hibbing is considered the biggest. They have this big ceremony and it's conducted in Italian. So all these speakers are speaking in Italian. There's one speaker who delivers a speech in English. It's Victor Power. And for him to attend an event like that, as a member of the merchant class, an Irishman and a well-connected person, you know, there are lots of important people in Hibbing, including Dr. Wyrick, who would not have been seen at an event like this. In New York City at this time, Irish and Italian Americans are fighting for control of the Democratic Party. Same thing's happening in Boston. But really, if you look at the history as, you know, these immigrant groups were considered to be the lowest of the low by the American people who saw them move into their cities. And so these two groups were vying to be the group that ascended to the middle class, ascended to the control. Let's come back to Paul Morris for a second, because there's another piece to Vic's character that I think is really exemplified by his relationship with Paul Morris. Paul Morris was not just a saloon keeper. He was the man who could acquire alcohol for a big part of the region. And it's not prohibition yet, but the alcohol side of Paul Morris and his family has told me he was an alcoholic. And so his life was very much dominated by the world of alcohol. And so that's part of the hook with his buddies. You know, a lot of his buddies, um, we know Delmo Befra made his own wine and would later maybe sell a little bit during the prohibition years. Which we've come to know pretty much everyone did in Hibbing. Yeah. I mean, there were there were a lot of key players. Like, Prohibition was largely ignored by Hibbing at large. Yeah, and, and certainly in the, um, in the populations where wine was a big part of the culture, they simply ignored it. They made their own wine. But what they found was you could make a little wine for your family, and then if you made a little more wine, you could sell it at a really nice markup. 
and that was good for your family too. So there was a lot of that that was going on. There wasn't one big bootlegger who ran the whole place. There was like hundreds of small bootleggers and they all kind of confederated their resources. And Vic had an obvious vested interest in that production to continue. <laughs> I know we've kind of glossed over it and we've hinted at it a little bit, but it's very clear to us that Vic was probably an alcoholic. He was a party guy who loved to drink and he had a reputation for that. Just like, yeah. just like our friend uh, RJ Thiel talking about how Vic had a reputation for, you know, going to bars and hanging out with lots of women. That was the other side of Vic. That was pretty well known. And... You know, I don't know that that was a problem for him. Not at this point in his life and career anyway. But then I think it might have been a problem for his family, especially after what happened in Bisbee, Arizona, because we see and we can only speculate, but it seems to make sense that after 1909, when they get back from the car chase and Vic had to get bailed out of prison, Vic suddenly gets married. He does. To a friend of the family who gets sent from Michigan to marry him. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really hard to say exactly how this was arranged, but she has direct connections. So her father was a prosecutor in northern Michigan, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And uh, certainly her father would have known Victor and Walter's father, John, who was a prominent attorney. And Percy is a two years older than Victor. She had worked as a shop girl, as a, as a retail clerk in different cities around the country. And apparently she ended up in Hibbing and they met in Hibbing. But it was almost a perfect family arrangement to take a young woman like Percy Garner, who uh, was a, a lovely young woman, but we don't know much about because she seemed a little shy and she wasn't ever reported much in the newspapers what she said or thought. She got a salad bowl for her birthday one year. I'd like to see that salad bowl. A salad bowl. That was newsworthy back then. Yeah. Fascinating. I'd really like to know what she thought about anything because she doesn't talk about it much and is never quoted on it. But Percy becomes his wife. They buy a house on Mahoning Street. It looks unlike any of the other homes. It's kind of a interesting wraparound front porch. It's like every side of the house is porch. It's a very welcoming house. I'm sure a lot of people wandered up on that porch to talk to Vic and Percy. And so Percy and him settle down and Victor sets to his career. And we have a lot of stories of things involving Vic and alcohol. It's really hard to diagnose someone as an alcoholic from a hundred years in the future without a lot of evidence, but there's a lot of evidence that he was at minimum a problem drinker. When he drank, problems happened. And when problems happened, he drank. When stuff got bad for Vic, his drinking got worse. So take that for what it's worth. It's really hard to say exactly what that means, but during his marriage to Percy Garner, there are very few of these stories. The alcoholic debauchery seems to slow down. Right. He appears to settle down in a really profound way with Percy as his wife. And while we don't really know what their relationship was like, we do know that they spend a lot of time together. They travel together. They go on picnics together. He's gone a lot for work. Like, a third of the year he's on the road for his either his legal work or his political work but when they're together it's very clear that they spend a lot of time with each other and so it suggests that they have at least by the standards of the time a good marriage we just don't know much about her we only know that he is a, a different man arguably a better man when she's around and that he works very hard and he dedicates himself it almost feels like somebody who 
Now, I can't have a drink tonight, so I may as well bang out this case, or I may as well prepare this speech. And so he really dedicates himself to his professional and personal life at this time. And... This brings us to 1910, yeah. which has us coming full circle to the end of episode one. It's shortly after this that he takes the case of Sam and Pete and really rises quickly through the ranks of notoriety as a star lawyer who knows how to get stuff done. And he's about to take on the biggest case of his life that literally changed the future of the village of Hibbing. I'm Aaron Brown. And I'm Carl Jacob. And you're listening to Power in the Wilderness. For more information about the show and to listen to previous episodes, visit powerinthewilderness.com. Picture, if you will, a village that has become almost completely surrounded by canyons. This is a new development because up until a few years ago, most of the mining was done underground, it was done in shafts, and it got to a point where they realized, well, the dirt above the shafts also has ore, so let's just start digging everything up. Underground mining is often how these mines would start because it was cheaper just to start digging directly down into the earth. Making a huge pit is expensive and requires a lot of energy. But when there's enough iron, it becomes profitable. And that's what was happening as the unprecedented amount of ore was being discovered. This time is, it's all new. You know, the town is like a peninsula surrounded now by these new pits that are working toward the village. And um, the very northern tip of this peninsula is the North Forty, which is where the main part of town is, and where Victor's office is, where the Power Theater is, where the Itasca Bazaar is. It's all there. Their world is surrounded. And every day, at any time, you hear a blast, and rocks rain down on the village. So there was one house that was resting at the closest edge of the new encroaching pit. This house will become important in about four or five minutes. And it was essentially under assault to the point where they were getting close to removing the foundation of the house. It was not in a good place. And the house would have eventually just fallen into the pit if they kept going. The mines didn't care because they didn't feel that there was going to be any challenge to them if they simply just blasted this house eventually off the side of the cliff. This is how little the mining companies cared about this. There was a cemetery on the north side of town from the very earliest days of the village. Walter Power told this story in his old age. He said one day when the blasts were getting closer and closer to town that a whole shelf of rock fell from the side of the pit, exposing caskets sticking out the edge of the cliff wall (laughs) including some that had busted open with human remains dangling out like halloween decorations oh my god and they simply kept blasting because as walter said in, in his interview that was mostly prostitutes and gamblers so they weren't too upset about it wow just think of it 
the dark image and because the iron was there and the money was good that they just kept going so th there was this almost uh, rowdy wild west mining taking place with no regard for the town because the mine remember thought of the town as a necessary inconvenience to house its workers they thought of it as an asset as something that they could you know well if we want it to move we'll just push it over here and we'll take the iron ore underneath that was their attitude. Yeah. It was something that if they kept firm control on the village, the village would put up with this. And indeed, the village did put up with this for a couple of years. The rocks would fall from the sky on the, on Pine Street, which was the second most northern street in town, which was the main street. It's where most of the bars are, many of the stores and businesses are. That's where Walter Powers Theater is, where Dottie Powers Itasca Bazaar department store is, where Victor Powers Law Office is. They're all along Pine Street. And rocks come down like raindrops. Sometimes it's dust, sometimes it's pebbles. And sometimes it's bigger than pebbles. Are there any accounts of people getting physically harmed by these rocks? I mean, that, that you've read in the newspapers? There must have been people who got killed by these falling rocks. It was probably common enough that maybe it didn't warrant a newspaper article. I think there were injuries. There were injuries reported. I'm not aware of a death. But Victor Power himself, while walking down the street to work one day, got pelted by a rock. He talked about that in later legal work that he did. And it was not a unique story. Most everybody got pelted by a rock. It was kind of like when you work a construction site, a falling nail might land on you or you might stub your toe on something. It was just an occupational hazard of living in the village of Hibbing at this time was the effects of mining, which included in this case falling rocks and blasts. Imagine living in this town that only a handful of years ago was far away from the mining activities that were initially done underground. Right. And then a decision is made to open up these underground mines and turn them into these massive canyon-like pits that are so deep that they have to pump the water out because they're going below the water table in order to maintain something dry enough for them to mine this ore. And it's the sounds of the train engines the sticks of dynamite getting shoved into rock and blasted. Think of all the shovels, uh, steam shovels, groaning and clanking at every hour of the daylight. And it's such a constant sound that it's actually, it's like living next to a train track where you never notice the train anymore because it's so loud. <laughs> or like a small dog who lives in your house who barks constantly. <laughs> And slowly and slowly, the canyon starts to consume your livelihood. It surrounds the town and starts encroaching in a maniacal, psychopathic way to the point where eventually something had to give. And something does give with the story of Lizzie and Ivor Lind. Lizzie's sitting at her dining room table in her home, which is also a boarding house, just on the edge of the cliff, and a giant boulder comes smashing through her roof and lands on her dining room table. Think of what happened to that table. It was turned into splinters. If you can just imagine that kind of force, a boulder falling from how, who knows how high up in the air that boulder went before it came back down and just obliterating her, her furniture. I mean, just <laughs> the shock must have been. Thankfully not killing anyone, but unfortunately, her husband Ivor, who was out working with the animals near their small farm that they had at their house, 
tending to a mule who gets startled so significantly by this blast and falling rocks that the mule kicks him in the nuts. <laughs> There's different euphemisms. Yeah. Um, manhood, uh, crotch area, groin. <laughs> is a groin, I think, is what appears in the newspaper. Uh, but causes a significant amount of damage to poor Ivor. Um, he falls over, needs medical attention, and they become sick of it. And Lizzie marches down to Victor Power's office and says, I want revenge. What can we do? She wants revenge. She wants money. They want compensation. But think of the implications of this. You know, this couple is walking into Victor Power's office saying, basically, the company that is responsible for this town existing the hand that feeds us, we want to bite it, essentially. You know, imagine the weight of this request coming into Victor Power's office, where this couple says, we want to put a stop to the company that made it possible for this town to exist in the first place. That's a pretty hefty ask. A company that, keep in mind, was well known to be the largest corporation in the world at this time. Not just the company that runs the town, but in many ways it runs the world. El pulpo pen. Correct. What does Victor Power do? He doesn't balk. He sees this as an opportunity, and he takes the case of Lizzie and Iverlind. If there's one thing that Victor Power was very good at, it was taking the cases of the merchant class of Hibbing and making statements with them about property rights, who owns what, and what it's really worth. Remember, this is a story not just about Victor Power with a capital P. It's a story about power with a small p, political, financial, economic power. And the mine's angle on this whole situation was that if they blasted their way into the north edge of Hibbing and just, without asking, and just did it, that the people would flee, that the property owners would sell, and that they wouldn't have to pay anything to knock them out of their places. It took someone like Lizzie, who Kari leaned, and her husband Ivor, but it's Lizzie who sues. It's Lizzie on the paperwork. It takes someone like her to say, no, we can't sell this for what it's worth because you've destroyed it, so you owe us money, and we will not leave or give up until we are compensated for what we're owed. Now, that's a very cut-and-dry case from a legal standpoint, but Victor Power was the only lawyer to ever attempt in the 20 years of mining and hibbing. He was the first to take a major high-profile case against the Oliver Iron Mining Company. So Victor, on behalf of Lizzie and Ivor, sues the mining operators who work on behalf of the Oliver. So who's listed on the paperwork? Uh, I can tell you. Um, Fifth Avenue and Pine Street. Lake Superior Consolidated Iron Mines. On behalf of the Royal Mineral Society, the Boeing Company, and the Oliver Iron Mining Company. In other words, it's a group of iron mines, but that are all in the sphere of influence of the Oliver Iron Mining Company. Frederick D. Owlsley is another another person in that, that group. And I love that Boeing is a name on this list. Yeah, there's a whole story of how that iron mine became an airplane company in a future episode. Yeah, so stay tuned for that. Or, I guess, tune in for that. Yeah. <laughs> so there's the Oliver Mining Company, and then there's companies that, on behalf of families in a lot of cases, or collections of people, own the mineral rights to the land. 
correct? That's right. So the, the mineral rights were separate from the surface rights. So when you buy a house, you buy the surface rights. You don't necessarily buy the mineral rights. And that was the case in North Hibbing. The liens owned the surface rights to their property, but the Oliver and their assorted allies owned the mineral rights. And what that meant was they felt it was within their bounds to just continue digging down into the minerals. Never mind what happens to the surface. <laughs> Even though there's a house on Of course, the end result will be the surface the surface will collapse into the pit. That's how science works, you know. <laughs> but they didn't really mind that or care about that. And there was absolutely no pushback. I'm sure there were engineers who were explaining, you know, if we do this, it'll affect them. And, and frankly, the, the decision was to press on, to advise anybody who asks to get the hell out of there. Uh, don't worry, folks, we're not going to move the whole village. They're just going to mine a little closer and a little closer. The very northeast corner of the village is just being eaten away by the mine itself. There's a great picture, it's on our website, of what this looks like, where there's a town, and then suddenly there's a pit. It's no fence, no signs, nothing. It's the pit. <laughs> you should know it's there. Don't step in it. You know, children who fall in this pit were never meant to grow old. <laughs> That's the kind of thing it was. And so the, the mine's strategy really is just forge ahead and push these people out of there because that's how they've always operated. Keep in mind, there is no permission being asked of the state or anything. There's just people, mines have the right, mines will take. And that's the attitude that exists in the village. That's the attitude of the village council. Remember, Mayor Warrick is of that mindset as well. So this is the status quo. Yeah. So Victor Power marches down to the courthouse, says, this is not cool. My client's house is getting destroyed. You need to give me an injunction so the mining can stop until we resolve this. <laughs> Injunctions granted. Imagine that. And the seller's mine, which is the mine nearest the liens, shuts down. But here's where the mining company doubled down on what would become a major political fight. They don't just shut down the section that Victor Power asked them to shut down. They shut down all the mines surrounding Hibbing, putting immediately 800 men out of work. And their strategy was to make the town feel pain so that they would all march up to Victor Power's office and the Leaned family's property and say, what gives you the right to destroy the livelihoods of an entire village because your little boarding house isn't successful anymore. That was their strategy. What they failed to account for, and what would become the most important part of this story, is what Victor Power would tell each and every person who came to his office complaining about this. He explained, and he describes this himself in, in speeches throughout his career, that people would come complaining about being out of work or losing business at their local business because the miners had no money if they weren't working. And he would tell them, listen, if we don't make this stand now, your business will be next and we will not be compensated. And every time a train leaves the Iron Range full of iron ore, it leaves with money that you will never get, that your children will never see, and all you're going to get is rocks through your roof and nothing more. It's an argument that he repeats it's an argument that gets into the local newspapers, and he's not a politician yet. Well, that's the big <laughs> He's a politician. He's not an elected official yet. He's not elected yet, <laughs> but this sentiment takes over. He doesn't just have to convince the miners. He has to convince the merchants. 
Well, keep in mind, the Power family has a bank called Merchants and Miners State Bank. <laughs> From the very beginning, the family understands the relationship between the merchant class and the working class. And Victor very much understands this, and he convinces the town, in some cases one by one, that working together with the miners and the merchants, we can force this company to do the right thing and to compensate us for what they take and to stop pushing us around because it'll never get better if we don't stop them from pushing us around. The argument works. The town buys in and for a period of time, even though the mines are shut down, Victor Power is still making his arguments in court and the town gives him the time to win the case. And think about it, he had just laid all of this groundwork with all of the different mining communities, all of the working class communities who needed that legal work done, who needed advice about how to, you know, solve their problems. He was their friend. And when they come to him complaining about losing their jobs, he says, yeah, I know, I know it sucks, but look at this is what we're going to do. And um, I wonder if he had not done all of that groundwork in the beginning and made all of those connections, if this would have succeeded, it may not have succeeded in the way that it did. I would venture to say it would not have succeeded. No, Victor Power built goodwill within the community and then would expend his political capital toward goals. If you follow politics, if you know anything about history, this is a rare quality. Not many people can do this, where they not only can build a coalition and build a, a network of friends and allies. Across classes. Across classes, across language barriers. Yeah. People who couldn't be in the same room with each other were, were all friends of Vic. <laughs> and know how to use it and say, right now at this moment, I can get this much out of the mines. And he knew you can't beat him on everything. But right now, he's got the perfect case. Their property was destroyed by another company with no regard for human safety or the rights of the homeowners and it's a cut and dry case Vic knows it it's a winner and he takes it because no other lawyer would touch a case like this because they don't want their reputation tied up with fighting the company that still runs the town nobody would ever stood up to them and everybody assumed that because of their massive army of lawyers that no lawyer even with a good case could ever prevail Vic Power prevailed. He won the case. They didn't account for Vic Power. No. Victor Power, in a speech just a few years after this, made mention of a fact that I think we should know about. He said that during his fight with the Oliver Iron Mining Company, efforts were made and treatments were made for him to, what in his words, liquidate. In other words, they approached him and tried to buy him off, tried to get him to give up the case, hmm. and he declined. He says this happened more than once in his career. I think that's very relevant because it's very clear at this point that he is out for something much bigger than himself. And when Victor Power is fighting for the village of Hibbing and not distracted by his own business ventures or the craziness we witnessed in the desert just a few moments ago, when he's motivated by helping others, he is a truly and profoundly powerful figure. And uncorruptible, which is interesting because we've noted that throughout his entire life, there was this duality that he struggled with internally between his fight for the public and for personally doing well financially. And he had these opportunities to get bought out by the mines, to get hush money and to just sort of fall in line. But this internal drive to do good for the public constantly kept him in balance or imbalance 
depending on how you want to look at it. A descendant of Victor Powers' Croatian friend, Paul Maris, told me that a phrase that went through his family was, some men who came to Hibbing wanted to do good, and some men wanted to do well, meaning financially. Victor Power did both. But those two things are different. And his whole life and career would be defined by the moments when he was trying to do good and the moments he was trying to do well. And in this case, he did great good for the village of Hibbing. And Victor Power knows that there's a new age coming, and he intends to be the leader of that age. And he and his friends of all ethnicities, of all classes, are all going to benefit from this coming age. I'm not one of the greedy kind. All of my one thought simple. I know what's on my mind. I'm not resting until I find what would make your eyes listen with joy. Now listen, big boy. Power in the Wilderness is a special production of KAXE KBXE Northern Community Radio. The show is written and produced by Carl Jacob and Aaron Brown, edited by Carl Jacob. This episode features music from Loba Loco, Ludwig's, Bubamara Brass Band, and Teddy and Marge. Thanks to the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund for supporting this program. Also thanks to Hanks Woodworks of Hibbing, Minnesota. Hanks Woodworks is a locally owned family carpentry business based in the town built by Victor Power. And a very special thanks to R.J. Thiel who brought to us this amazing story of the Power family in Mexico. If you'd like to hear past episodes of Power in the Wilderness, soar! if you'd like to see pictures about the people and places we talk about, you're going to want to check out our website, powerinthewilderness.com. We'll see you next time on Power in the Wilderness.